Was the resurrection body of Jesus uh, so different in appearance from the body he had before he died uh, that it was virtually unrecognizable to those who walked with him day in and day out? Was his resurrection body made of something other than the physical atoms and molecules and flesh and blood and bones that our bodies are made up of now? Did he shed his resurrection body when he ascended to heaven? These are the kinds of questions we're going to answer in today's episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. For those of you watching live, a special shout out to you, uh, Mr. Green, who I've known for many years, and Skylar, or otherwise known as Star Welters, whom I've known for not quite as long, but have come to consider a dear friend. It's great to have you guys in the chat. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope that uh, you find this useful. For those of you who are watching live, and I don't know it because you're not commenting, welcome and thank you as well. And if you're not watching this live, but are watching it after it's streamed, I appreciate you doing so. Um, Remember that the three of the most important things you can do if you appreciate what I do here at The Apologetics is number one, like the video, uh, assuming you did in fact like it, and number two, subscribe to the channel, and number three, click that notifications bell. All three of those things will help uh, cause the YouTube algorithms to give my channel and videos greater exposure uh, throughout the YouTube uh, you know, network and all of that, um, so I would be uh, super appreciative of that. Uh, thank you. Susan for um, confirming that the audio was good. Um, one other thing, by the way, that you can do to really help uh, this YouTube channel is watch through to the end. Uh, evidently, YouTube's metrics, where they determine how long people watch the video, if they detect that somebody has watched from start to finish, that's a big boost. Uh, so uh, I'm going to try to keep this video uh, somewhat short, you know, shorter than some of the other ones I've done. Um, and I think it's super important. In fact, I consider this one of the most important episodes I've done so far. Uh, and so I'd be super grateful if you'd watch from start to finish. Now, by way of reminder, uh, Theapologetics is part of the Trinity Commission. The Trinity Commission is a network of YouTube channels and podcasts that are in some way, shape, or form connected to, related to, associated with Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, whose um, whose merch I am sporting right now. Uh, I'm super grateful to be a part of Trinity, to be able to call myself an adjunct professor of Bible and theology there. Um, if you are looking for a higher Christian education, but you are not able to um, partake of the sort of uh, traditional brick-and-mortar institution where you've got to show up in class for hours each week, and if you can't afford the exorbitant cost of many um, higher institutions, then consider Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. You can learn more by going to Trinity Sem. Dot edu, SEM being short for seminary. And this is the school, by the way, at which Trinity or um, Braxton Hunter and uh, uh, 
Jonathan Pritchett of Trinity Radio both teach at. In fact, Braxton's the president and Jonathan is a vice president there. Um, it's also where uh, Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101 and Steve Gregg of The Narrow Path and um, uh, Tim Stratton of Freethinking Ministry, it's Free Thinking Ministries, it's where they all teach as well, among many others. So if you would like to receive a formal education for people who are passionate about the essentials of the faith, conservative evangelicals, but who also, um, this, in addition to their scholarship, care a lot about doing public ministry for the edification of the church, um, I can think of no better school than Trinity um, for, uh, for learning from people like us who have these kinds of public ministries. Um, if, however, you're not looking for a formal education, then you can get something of an informal one from those shows that I mentioned uh, that are all part of the Trinity Commission. Trinity Radio, The Narrow Path, Soteriology 101, although I'm not sure that you'll get much of a great education from Soteriology 101, but you'll at least uh, get a feel for the the landscape of Christian Soteriology, um, especially comparing Leighton Flowers' Soteriology 101 to my Theopologetics, because whereas he will present a provision non-Calvinist perspective, I present a Calvinist perspective here. Um, and then, as I said, Steve Gregg, The Narrow Path, and, and, and others, you will, um, these are all excellent shows, uh, and I would encourage you to subscribe and, and check those out as well. I've been um, rambling for long, so I'll jump right into the topic and just after just one more thing. Um, I have historically considered myself somebody called to the um, to the lectern, um, if that's the right word for it, the, the, the classroom. I've considered myself somebody who's called to be a professor at a uh, Christian seminary or, or a university. Um, but a number of years ago, I read a book and published a review for it in Evangelical Review of Theology called Pastor Theologian, or The Pastor Theologian. And um, Ever since reading that book and publishing that review, I have at least kept myself open to the possibility that um, God may indeed have uh, uh, some amount of calling for me in the area of uh, things having to do with uh, uh, pastorate. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, I got to participate in my first ever sermon before a congregation. I, I contributed a uh, percentage, maybe a third of the um, sermon that I tag teamed with my, uh, my head pastor at my local church, and it was a fantastic experience. I really enjoyed it, and this coming Sunday, um, Sunday, August 1st, I will be pre uh, present uh, preaching completely my own solo sermon for the first time ever, and hopefully not the last time, um, Lord willing. Uh, now, we don't have, we're not technologically set up yet to be able to live stream, but we do record our uh, sermons. And so um, I will on Facebook post a link to the sermon after it's been published to the church's YouTube channel. And I'd very much love to know what you think. And in the meantime, I would greatly appreciate your prayers. I think that. Um, preaching before the local congregation carries with it a solemnity, a profundity that doing a YouTube channel like this just does not have. Um, so I want to take it seriously. I want to do it justice. I want them to uh, submit to the Holy Spirit's leading in the sermon I prepare and deliver. So I'd very much appreciate your prayers. And as I said, after the sermon has um, aired, I would uh, love for your feedback. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're going to be going through today. Um, 
the very first episode of this YouTube channel is covering uh, covers a topic I'm extremely passionate about, and in fact, it's the topic that got me into public ministry in the first place, and that is the resurrection. And by the resurrection, I don't only mean the resurrection of Jesus, I also mean the resurrection he has secured for us. The resurrection in which we will one day um, we will one day rise from the dead, immortal and glorious, just as Jesus did. I'm extremely passionate about it. Um, in fact, I've been thinking that maybe after book projects I'm currently working on, I will uh, try to secure a publisher for a book on the importance of resurrection, in which I would also uh, refute, you know, many of the false views and heresies that are out there surrounding um, surrounding the resurrection. Well, the importance of resurrection, uh, I was reminded of the importance of resurrection very recently, um, because in my recent debate with Universalist Keith Giles, um, I learned that he denies uh, an essential of the Christian faith having to do with resurrection. And that spurred in me a desire to cover the topic we're going to be covering today, which, which is this. We're going to look at several biblical texts that I'm going to argue are sometimes misunderstood um, in ways that I think are uh, outright heretical in terms of um, their implications for uh, the nature of Christ's resurrection body and, and the future resurrection of the dead. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at some of those texts that are misunderstood as to uh, what the nature of Jesus's body was and, and therefore what the nature of our bodies will be when we rise from the dead. Um, so that's what we're going to cover and I'll just go ahead and stop you know, beating around the bush and, and actually dive right in. So I've put up on the screen here a picture of somebody named Marcus Borg. He is now late. He, he has passed away, um, if I'm not mistaken. And he is, as far as I can tell, was a liberal New Testament scholar and theologian. He was a fellow of the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar are those people who um, vote on which part... <laughs> So stupid. Vote on which parts of the Gospels are authentically, you know, authentically record the historical Jesus's words and actions and which ones don't. Again, it's so stupid. But anyway, so he's a, he was a fellow of the Jesus Seminar. He's very influential within uh, progressive so-called Christianity. And yes, I say progressive so-called Christianity because progressive Christianity is not, in my estimation, Christianity. Um, but his name is one that you will hear thrown around. In fact, in that debate with Universalist Keith Giles, he said he holds a view like Marcus Borg concerning the resurrection of Jesus and, the re and our resurrection. And critically, for our purposes today, Marcus Borg denied Jesus' bodily resurrection, or at least his physically bodily resurrection. So here, for example, is a quote from Borg. He says, physical uh, stroke, I was going to say stroke, that's how uh, the Brits say slash. Physical slash bodily means fleshly, molecular, protoplasmic, corpuscular existence. But the risen Jesus is not, in this sense, a physical bodily reality. The resurrection stories in the New Testament make that clear. Now, what does he mean by these words fleshly, molecular, protoplasmic, and corpuscular? Well, fleshly means having an actual physical presence. This is a standard dictionary definition. Molecular means, again, uh, again uh, a dictionary definition, consisting of molecules, right? Molecules are, uh, I suppose, technically one, but I, typically two or more um, atoms of matter um, bound, you know, bonded together. 
um, by the uh, electronic bonds created by the electrons that spin around the nuclei of those atoms. So obviously very physical still. Protoplasmic. Um, so protoplasm refers to all of the stuff inside a living cell that has a nucleus. So protoplasmic means consisting of living cells that have nuclei. And corpuscular, a corpuscle is, among other things, a blood cell. And um, corpuscular means something like consisting of blood cells, which are cells that, unlike the other cells in the body, don't have nuclei. So you put these pieces together, these denials that, um, that, that Marcus Borg is saying, that Jesus is not, does not have these kinds of uh, characteristics. These things don't characterize his existence as a resurrected person. What he is saying then is that Jesus' resurrection body is not physical, is not composed of uh, molecules or cells, and does not circulate blood. All right? Um, now, his basis for this is, among other things, John 20, in which he says the risen Jesus appears in a locked room, and uh, Luke 24, in which he says that he is not recognized by two of his followers for a couple of hours, at which, after which point he then suddenly vanishes. All right, so we'll be looking at these texts. But it's not just Marcus Borg who is late, it's also the still living and respected universalists. So here, for example, is David Bentley Hart. David Bentley Hart is an Eastern Orthodox philosopher and theologian. He is an incredible writer and wordsmith. It's, um, there's nothing like reading David Bentley Hart, honestly. I, I, I could only aspire to be half the wordsmith and writer that David Bentley Hart is. He's also a popular universalist. In fact, he just in recent years published a book called That All Shall Be Saved, I think is what it's called, and it's a um, philosophical, theological case for universalism. By the way, one in which he has, he minces no words when he talks about believers in conditional immortality like me and believers in eternal torment like most Christians. He treats with abject contempt. Um, so when I say he's an incredible writer and wordsmith, I don't necessarily mean that he's um, charitable and respectful. No, quite the contrary. He's very often not, but he is an incredible wordsmith. Anyway, and again, for our purposes today, Hart denies the flesh and blood resurrection of Jesus and of us. His reasons are primarily found, although not exclusively so, in 1 Corinthians 15. So Hart writes that in speaking of the body of the resurrection as a spiritual rather than psychical body, note he's not saying physical, he's saying psychical, and that's because the word is not physical, it's psychikos, uh, comes from the word psyche, which is where we get psyche, right? So psychic, psychical body, he says. Um, Paul is thereby saying that bodies, the bodies of those raised to new life will be purged of every element of flesh and blood. So according to universalist, popular universalist David Bentley Hart, Jesus' resurrection body isn't composed of flesh and does not circulate blood. Okay? Just like Marcus Borg. He also adds that, um, in addition, he, he says that in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, that's proof that Jesus, and uh, like, like we will do, shed his flesh and blood in the resurrection and traded it in for some, a non-flesh, non-blood body. Now, what's a little ironic is that David Bentley Hart is, a, is an Eastern Orthodox, because 
similar to Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox pride themselves on holding the writings of the earliest church fathers in high esteem. Uh, Catholics and, and the Orthodox often think themselves, it seems to me, more interested in the writings of the early church than we Protestants are. And yet, here we have David Bentley Hart saying the, the resurrection body of Jesus isn't composed of flesh and blood, and neither will ours be. Well, what did the early church have to say about this? Well, Clement of Rome, writing toward the very tail end of the first century, says the maker of all things will raise up again those that have piously served him in the assurance of a good faith. Um, and as proof of that, Clement quotes Job, who says, thou shalt raise up this flesh of mine. Ignatius of Antioch, right around that same time, right around 100 AD, says this, there's one physician who is, not was, is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh. And he says, I know that after his resurrection, he was still possessed of flesh, and I believe so that he is now. Justin Martyr, writing in the latter half of the second century, says that he shall raise the bodies of all men who have lived. And he quotes Ezekiel um, saying, joint shall be joint to joint, joint to joint, and bone to bone, and flesh shall grow again. So, so far we've got Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin the Martyr, all saying the, the body, the resurrection body of Jesus was, and in the case of Ignatius, is flesh. But it doesn't end there. Right around the same time, roughly, as Justin Martyr, is Irenaeus of Lyon, writing, The church has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. And he talks about the return of Jesus one day to raise up anew all flesh. Tatian of Adiabene, writing around the same time, just slightly later than Irenaeus, says that the human soul could not ever appear by itself without the body, nor does the flesh rise again without the soul. Notice he is saying the flesh rises again, he's just saying it doesn't do so without the soul. Theophilus of Antioch, a little later than Tatian, says, When thou shalt have put I maybe it's it's right around the same time. When thou shalt have put off the mortal and put on incorruption, then shall thou then shalt thou see, this is a, an old translation of Theophilus, sorry. Then shalt thou see God worthily, for God will raise thy flesh immortal. Athenagoras of Athens, writing around the end of the second century, says we shall abide near God. Um, he says, not as flesh, even though we shall have flesh. Clement of Alexandria, also a universalist, by the way says, God himself will set the flesh free, endowing it with incorruptibility, arraying the flesh in immortality. You see, setting the flesh free doesn't mean getting rid of it. It means making, setting it free from its bondage, from its corruption, immortalizing it. And one last quote is from Tertullian. For if the resurrection of the flesh be denied... That prime article of the faith is shaken. What is he saying? He's saying the resurrection of the flesh is a prime article of the faith. In fact, he says, he therefore will not be a Christian who shall deny this doctrine which is confessed by Christians. So what do we see here? We see here that the earliest followers of Christ and for the next couple of hundred years, universally, I mean, granted, I'm giving you a sampling, but it's a representative sampling, universally affirm not just a resurrection of some sort, but a resurrection of the flesh, not just of Jesus, but of us as well, of whom he was the first fruits. 
Of course, those church fathers don't ultimately matter in the way that scripture does. We'll turn to scripture in just a second. But again, I want to point out the irony in an Eastern Orthodox so rejecting the unanimity of the early church from which he would certainly claim uh, that the Eastern Orthodox Church derives its, um, its, its authority. Anyway, turning to scripture though, what does Jesus say, right? Because the words of God incarnate, Jesus, are probably a little bit more authoritative than Clement Ignatius, Tertullian, Tatian, Athenagoras, uh, Clement of Alexandria, etc., etc., etc. And they're more authoritative than the words of either Marcus Borg or David Bentley Hart. So what does Jesus say? Well, after his resurrection, he tells doubting Thomas, put out your hand and place it in my side. In Luke's account, Jesus says, touch me and see. Not just because a resurrection body is tangible. That is something that David Bentley Hart affirms, that the, that the stuff of which the resurrection body is made is tangible. You can touch it, but it's not physical, and it's not flesh, and it's not blood. But what does Jesus say? A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. You might wonder, by the way, how does David Bentley Hart get around this? Well, he just says, and, and you can read this for, your, for yourself, he just says, well, Luke is an inconsistency. Uh, the, the New Testament is not consistent with itself on the nature of Jesus' resurrection body, and here is one abno uh, anomaly. But for those of us who think the Bible is God's word, and that Jesus is God's word, in fact, the word incarnate, if we accept his authority, we need to believe that Jesus' resurrection body is flesh and bones, physical composed of cells, the kinds of cells that make up flesh and bones and blood, and is able to be touched. So what then are we to do with those texts that we saw cited by the likes of Marcus Borg and David Bentley Hart? What are we to do about texts that are thought by the likes of them to indicate that the risen Jesus wasn't recognized, wasn't physical, or shed his physical body? That last point isn't something that David Bentley Hart or Marcus Borg say, but it is something that, uh, that, that people I'm friends with on Facebook say. We'll get to that. Well, let's, these are the three categories of texts that I want to look at today because my contention will be that they are misunderstood. I'm not saying that the reading of these texts offered by Borg, Hart, and others are implausible, but I am going to argue that they're not necessitated by any stretch of the imagination and that they're probably not the best readings of those texts, which allows us to accept what Jesus said, that his body is made of flesh and blood, even bones, after he's resurrected. So. Let's go through these categories of texts. First, texts thought to indicate that the risen Jesus wasn't recognized. I'm sure you've heard of this before. You might even believe it yourself, that somehow Jesus' resurrection body uh, was so different in appearance from the way he looked before he died that he wasn't even recognized by those closest to him. Um, the, the argument goes, the fact that they didn't recognize him is a clear indisputable proof that the resurrection body of Jesus looked fundamentally different in profound ways from the from the body he had before his death and uh, the body in which he died well one such text is Luke 24:16 in and here I'm quoting from uh, the uh, good news translation which is by no stretch of the imagination a uh, a, a reliable go-to translation to be your you know your your go-to research bible or anything like that 
But I'm quoting it because of the way that it puts it. It says, Jesus, it records that Jesus drew himself near and they saw him, but somehow did not recognize him. Now, if this were what the text said, then we could scratch our heads about, well, gosh, what, may, maybe he looked radically different in his resurrection body because why wouldn't his followers have been able to recognize him? <laughs> but the reality is this isn't how this text reads. Um, the ESV captures well what the text does in fact read, which is that when Jesus drew near, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That word translated kept is a verb. It's a passive verb. It means that their eyes were acted upon from without or constrained from without. In fact, the text will go on to say that after that uh, encounter, that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And once again, opened is a passive verb. His, their eyes were acted upon from without. This is very similar, um, and the verbiage very similar to Mark 7, in which Jesus, he, he, he spits into mud in his fingers and he rubs it into um, a guy's ears, if I'm remembering correctly, and says, be opened, and the text says his ears were opened. It's, it, this is a miraculous opening of the guy's ears. The text that we're looking at is also similar to Genesis 3, 6, and 8 in the Septuagint, in which Adam and Eve are told, your eyes would be opened, and then it says their eyes are opened after they eat from the fruit. It's not that, it's not that something was, they had awareness of something, but just couldn't understand it, and now all of a sudden they real no, their eyes are supernaturally opened to something they weren't previously open to because they ate from the fruit. And our text is similar to 2 Kings 6.17 in the Septuagint, in which the Lord opens the guy's eyes, and all of a sudden he sees around him myriads of angelic, uh, 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 um, an angelic army, an angelic host, myriads of chariots and horses. So their eyes are opened at the end of this encounter, supernaturally from without, having been supernaturally closed to begin with. That's what this text is saying. The disciples were supernaturally prevented from recognizing Jesus, and then they were supernaturally enabled to recognize him. This text doesn't say anything about Jesus' appearance or his resurrection body. Is it possible that he looked radically different from, he, from how he looked prior to his death? Maybe. But this text says nothing like that. And an equally plausible, and I would argue more faithful to the text, reading is that the disciples were supernaturally prevented from being able to recognize him. God is um, orchestrating a dramatic event in which he is his identity, he reveals his identity to them after they don't realize they've been walking with him for some time in order to uh, do something profound for them. All right. So nothing in this text necessitates or even calls for the idea that somehow Jesus looked different. But what about John 20, 14? Here, Mar uh, Mary is at the tomb. And she turns around and sees Jesus standing, but didn't know that it was Jesus. In fact, the text says that she thinks he's a gardener. Well, now this one may seem a little more promising for the thesis of people like Borg and Hart and Giles. But notice the text says that Mary is here early while it's still dark 
and she's been weeping. So, just as plausible, if not more so, certainly based on more of the text than the alternative, uh, the, possible, the possibility is that the reason Mary doesn't recognize Jesus is because it's dark, she's seeing through tears, and she is, she's already assumed that his body has been taken from the tomb. So when in the dark, a hazy figure appears through her tears and in the darkness, she assumes it wasn't Jesus because his body's already been taken. Well, what's the next most plausible thing that eats a gardener? The text doesn't say anything about Jesus' appearance or resurrection body. Might we speculate that there's something different about his body? Perhaps, but the text gives us no reason for thinking so at all. And it gives us every reason for thinking that her inability to recognize him at first has to do with the circumstances. It's dark, she's been crying, and she has already concluded that his body's been taken. So what else is she going to think when she sees a hazy figure in the dark? Um through her tears. But what about John 21, 4? Jesus stood on the shore, the text says, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Once again, just look at the text, because the text says that this happened just as the day was breaking and that they were about a hundred yards from shore. So what reason does the text give us for thinking that Jesus was not recognized by his disciples? They don't recognize him because the sun is just coming up. It's still dark. You know, it's starting to get light, but it's still dark. And they're a whole football field away from him. Uh, and by the way, they're on a boat that might be swaying a little bit. Imagine you. Imagine it's the the it's dawn is breaking, and you're a hundred yards at one end of a football field from another person. And your, most, your, your view is moving because you're on water. Are you going to be able to recognize somebody from 100 yards away in the, in, in the dawning light while your field of vision is moving? Of course not. We have no reason for thinking that in this text, uh, what it's saying is that Jesus' appearance or resurrection body was different than it was and that that's the reason he was unrecognizable. That's completely speculative. There's no reason for thinking that at all. So what do we see? In each of these three texts, the text itself gives us every reason we might want for thinking that Jesus is not recognized, and it never has anything to do with the nature, composition, or appearance of his body. It has everything to do with their circumstances. And in the case of the uh, the road, when he, um, the first one we went through, God is supernaturally preventing them from seeing. So the first category of text that gives people like Marcus Borg and David Bentley Hart and Keith Giles reasons for embracing their absurd ideas about the resurrection body um, are uh, they, they don't they don't communicate any such thing. There's no warrant in the text for that craziness. But what about texts that such people are going to argue indicate Jesus's resurrection body wasn't physical? Let's look at those now. Luke 24, 31 records, and this is, this is that first account we were looking at. So we saw God had supernaturally kept the eyes of Jesus' disciples from, from identifying him, and then he supernaturally enables them to see, and now Jesus vanishes from their sight. So this, it's sometimes argued, is an indication that the stuff of which the resurrection body is composed isn't physical and constrained by physical things, isn't 
isn't visible physically unless the person chooses to manifest him or herself that way, right? It's it's um, it's just an altogether different kind of stuff than the physical bodies we have now are made up of. But is that what the text necessitates? No. Uh, in Acts, we read about um, Philip, who is not yet dead, is not yet glorified, and yet, what does it say? That after he talks to the eunuch, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The word carried away there means snatched away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And then all of a sudden, Philip finds himself at Azotus. So here we have a yet still living, yet unglorified, ordinary mortal body of Philip able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be teleported from one place to another instantaneously. Now that sounds like the like science fiction, but it's but it's the part of the New Testament worldview. So when Jesus vanishes from their sight after his resurrection in Luke 24, 31, we can we have every reason to think that it's simply that Jesus miraculously vanishes in the same way that the still living yet unglorified Philip will later do on the road to Gaza. The text says nothing about Jesus' appearance or resurrection body. Might his body have been made up of some substantially different stuff that is not ordinarily visible to the naked eye? Yeah, possibly, but this text gives us no reason for thinking so. Well, what about John 20, 19 and 26? So this is the upper room um, appearance of Jesus. The doors were being uh, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them. Although the doors were locked, the text later goes on to say, Jesus came and stood among them. So this is the these are the texts that are the basis for some people claiming that Jesus' body could go through walls. I'm sorry, but if you stop saying that absurdity. There's no indication that Jesus' body could go through walls as some sort of indication that it was made up of different stuff than it was made up of prior to his death. Um, the reason is because of what we just saw. The Holy Spirit has, or, well, will prove and acts his ability to transport, teleport physical people from one place to another. So we can just assume that Jesus miraculously apparates here in the same way the still living yet unglorified Philip will later do in Azotus after he suddenly vanishes from before the eunuch's sight. The text says nothing about Jesus' appearance or resurrection body. Might Jesus' body have been made up of a, his resurrection body be made up of a different kind of stuff that makes it possible for him to sort of float through walls? I mean, yeah, I suppose that's possible, but this text doesn't tell us that. So stop saying it does. What about 1 Corinthians 15.44? Now we're starting to get to the meat of David Bentley Hart's reasoning. Paul says that the body that is sown is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. Well, first notice that the contrast here between natural and spiritual is a contrast between the Greek words psuchikos, it's where we get the word psuche or psyche, life, soul, and it is raised a pneumatikos. A pneumaticos, you put this emphasis over the, where the accent is. Pneumaticos body. This comes from the word pneuma, meaning, uh, sorry, not pneumaticos, pneumaticos. <laughs> you're, in, you're supposed to pronounce the P. And by the way, it is pronounced P, not pi. 
Although the mathematical symbol is called pi. But so, you know, the, the, the Greek... Um, um, fraternity and, 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 and sorority house names. It shouldn't be something pi gamma. It should be something P gamma. But anyway, pneumatikos, pneumatikos comes from the Greek word pneuma, meaning spirit or wind or breath. So keep that in mind. The contrast Paul is offering here is between not the English words natural and spiritual, but the Greek words psychikos and pneumatikos. Now, the reason that's important is because Paul has already used this exact contrast earlier in the very same letter. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 15, the natural person, the psuchikas person, does not accept the things of God, but the spiritual person, the pneumatikas person, judges all things. Notice here he's talking about still living, still mortal, yet to die, yet unglorified people. Some of whom don't believe, others of whom believe. In fact, some would argue that the psukakos people he's talking about, he's not necessarily restricting it to unbelievers. He's talking about believers in both cases. <laughs> Sorry for that snort. Some of whom, <laughs> some of whom are uh, psukakos and others who are pneumatikos. But the point is, the contrast is between two people of two different characters. Two, two different dispositions. No, Buffalo Bev, in English the P is silent, but not in Greek. In Greek you pronounce the P, pneumatikos. Anyway, the contrast is not between different kinds of stuff. It's not even a contrast between pre-death people and post-resurrection people. It's a contrast between two different kinds of people, people of different dispositions, orientations, characters. And, and these words just mean of the psuche, of the pneuma, you know, in some way related to the psuche, in some way related to pneuma. To, to read into these adjectives composition, substance, is to restrict the semantic field of these words. There's just an of kind of relationship between the body in the case of 1 Corinthians 15.44 and the person in the case of 1 Corinthians 2, a relationship between that and the psuche or that and the pneuma. So what most commentators will tell you, given that what we just saw is that earlier both the natural or psuchikos and spiritual or pneumatikos persons here are still living and yet to be glorified, given that's the contrast Paul has in mind, and given that spiritual just means pertaining or related to the spirit in some way, not having to do with composition, what we can conclude is that glorified spiritual bodies, pneumatikos bodies, are oriented toward and motivated by the things of the spirit. You see, our, our psuchikas bodies, our, our life bodies, the bodies that we're accustomed to living in, are, are uh, fueled by, motivated by the things that we so desperately seek after to keep, to stay alive. Food, shelter, sex, right? There's a host of things that drive us, our motive, our mo they motivate our bodies, driving us to do what we do. It, they consume our thoughts very often. They, they cause us to make dumb decisions sometimes. And what Paul is saying is that glorified pneumatikos bodies have been reoriented away from focused concentration on those things that um, may ordinarily keep us alive, but God could certainly do that, away from those things to the things of the Spirit. Love, mercy, you know, peace, 
holiness, obedience, etc. The text here says nothing about the composition or, or substance of glorified resurrection bodies, let alone that of Christ. Well, but then what about that verse that Hart goes on to point to, where, he, where Paul says in verse 50 that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the text goes on to exhibit a typical Hebrew parallelism. Remember, Paul is writing in Greek, but he's a Jew. And he thinks like a Jew. He thinks uh, in Hebraic uh, ways of writing and speaking, one of which is stereotypically Semitic, if not stereotypically Hebraic, and that is parallelism. And what does this parallel uh, say, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You see, this Hebraism demonstrates for us that flesh and blood is parallel to, virtually synonymous with, perishable. Look how the phrase is elsewhere used. Paul says in Galatians 1.16 that I did not immediately consult with anyone. That's how most translations render it. But they're smoothing over the fact that the original Greek says flesh and blood. He didn't consult with mortals. Similarly, we see in Matthew 6, uh, 16, 17, that when Peter says, you are the, the, the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says to him, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is, who is in heaven. The point is not a distinction between stuff made up of flesh and blood versus spirit, which is not. The contrast is between ordinary mortal man and glorious immortal God. Or take uh, Sirach, uh, Ben Sirach in the book of Sirach, which is a uh, deuterocanonical or uh, apocryphal book in the Old Testament, um, says the generation of flesh and blood, uh, in, the, in the generation of flesh and blood, one comes to an end and another is born. What, what is the focus here? The focus is on man's mortality. Um, and so Craig Keener, a respected New Testament scholar, says that flesh and blood was a common figure of speech for mortals. And so I think that Roy Kiampa, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, and Brian Rosner, they capture the, the meaning of what Paul is saying here extremely well. These two clauses, they say, imply that perishable humanity, flesh and blood, cannot inherit the imperishable kingdom of God. This isn't about the composition of glorified resurrection bodies. Paul's point is that mortals, f mere flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They must be made immortal. And I'll add, by the way, that even if that wasn't what Paul was saying, all that, it, all that a person needs to inherit the kingdom of God is for something beyond flesh and blood to be added to them. Right? If, if you're just flesh and blood, maybe you can't inherit the kingdom of God, but if you're flesh and blood and more, well then, if the more is capable of inheriting the kingdom of God, then you'd be able to do so despite still having flesh and blood. But but even that aside, again, the point is that Paul is he's using an idiom, an expression, a figure, figure of speech, flesh and blood, meaning mortals. Mortals cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They've got to become immortal. Okay, but then what about 1 Peter 3.18, in which um, Peter says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit? Well, if you know anything about Greek, you might be tempted to think that in the flesh and in the spirit here are prepositional phrases. Uh, prepositional phrase is a phrase that begins with a preposition like in, 
or with or on or under or over, etc. Right? So you might be tempted to think that this is the Greek preposition en or ace, meaning in in the first case or into in the case of the other, in the second case, in hasarks, right? In the flesh or ace hapnuma into the spirit. You might think that that's what the Greek reads, but it doesn't. These phrases, in the flesh and in the spirit, both translate single Greek words. In the flesh is a translation of the word sarki, which is a form, uh, the dative form of the Greek word sarks, and in the spirit translates pneumati, which is the dative form of pneuma. You see, these are simple datives, the dative case in Greek which is extremely flexible. These aren't the less flexible, although still very flexible, prepositional phrases that might begin with the word in, which again would either be the Greek en or the Greek ace. Datives, as I said, are very flexible. Um, they can refer to the indirect object of a verb. They can refer to the sphere in which something applies. Or... It can refer to the agency by which something is accomplished. And, and those are just three of many uses of the dative. So these are incredibly flexible um, forms here. And to assume that they're communicating something about the, stu the stuff of which Jesus' resurrection body was made, or, or rather, even more specifically, the stuff of which his mortal body was made contrasted with the stuff of which his resurrection body was made, is to assume, um, before actually doing the work of exegesis, that these datives communicate a, a dative of sphere or a dative of composition or something like that. Well, notice how plenty of translations render this. The King James says Jesus was put to death but quickened by the Spirit, or the New King James, the New King James Version, I think, says uh, made alive by or resuscitated by or something like that, by the Spirit. So notice here you've got the dative of agency, by the Spirit. Uh, the Jewish New Testament, done by David Stern, similarly reads that he was brought to life by the Spirit. The New International Version Reader's translation says that the Holy Spirit brought him back to life. There's that sense of agency that the dative can communicate. Uh, the Common English Bible says he was made alive by the Spirit. The Christian Standard Bible, which is excellent, um, it's the successor to the Holman Christian Standard Bible, um, says that he was made alive by the Spirit. The, these translations are all choosing to render the dative in the first case as a dative of sphere, right? It was in the sphere of flesh that he was put to death. Uh, and they translate the second dative as agency by the Spirit. And notice, when you're dealing with something as simple as a single word where, where the meaning of the word trades on the case of the word, you don't have nearly the same rigidity that you would when you're offering two parallel phrases. Right? So here's an example. In um, Matthew 25, 46, Jesus says that those on his left will be sent into Ionias um, Krisin, I think is what it is. Uh, no, that's not right. Um, anyway, Ionias, and then there's a noun, meaning eternal punishment. Uh, and the others will go into eternal life, Ionias Zoane. And Ionia, and, and here what you've got are two phrases, both of which share the same adjective. 
And that's a good reason for thinking that the adjective means the same thing in both clauses, because you're dealing with uh, two phrases, not merely words whose meanings trade on the case. Uh, and I'm sure you could find a host of other examples, but here you're dealing with simply put to death and then one noun in a dative case, but made alive and then another noun in a dative case. There's no reason for assuming that the, that the um, case communicates the same thing in both clauses. And so these translations that all choose a dative of agency when talking about being made alive by the Spirit are very plausible. And, and it coheres well with other texts like Romans 8.11, uh, in which Paul says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. Notice, it's the Spirit, it's by the Spirit of God that Jesus is raised from the dead. And it's by the Spirit of God that our bodies will be given life. You see, what this text seems to be saying is that Christ rose by or in or through the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say anything about the composition of glorified resurrection bodies, let alone that of Christ. Again, maybe his body was composed of some fundamentally different stuff, but this text doesn't give us any reason for thinking so. All right, well, let's turn now to the third. So we've debunked all, as far as I can tell. Well, no, I think there is one more text coming up that David Bentley Hart points to. But all of the texts that somebody like David Bentley Hart or Keith Giles or um, Marcus Borg will cite in claiming that Jesus' resurrection body was so different as to be unrecognizable and not composed of physical, physical stuff, we've debunked all that. All of those texts have equally good, if not far better, readings that, that uphold the unanimous testimony of the early church that Jesus rose in the flesh. But we still have two texts left to deal with that I have seen used, argued, uh, used to argue that Jesus shed his physical body when he ascended to heaven. One of those texts, and, and I, I, I misspoke, I haven't actually seen this text used in this way. Um, David Bentley Hart uses this text to argue that Jesus was raised in a, a different composition, not physical flesh, but spiritual stuff. But because this text doesn't explicitly say resurrection, and because I wanted to have at least some uh, symmetry in, in the number of verses I cover in each of these three different categories, I put this text here. And it's in this text, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, that Paul says the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, what this communicates to some people, or rather what they think it communicates, is that the Jesus, either when he rose or when he ascended, became not a fleshly, um, not, not, a, not a person composed of flesh, but a person with a body composed of spirit. Or he just got rid of his flesh and, and he just re returned to the pure uh, spirit form that he had prior to his incarnation, or, or so the argument might go. So let's dig into this. Um, this, is, this is something, uh, this is a fascinating text, by the way, and I think it deserves more attention because I don't see um, something brought out that I think I see there. So I'd be interested in your take on this. But notice first that Paul says the first man with whom he's contrasting Jesus, Adam, became a living being. And what Paul is doing is he's quoting from uh, the Septuagint, Genesis 2-7. 
in which God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, at which point the man became a living creature. Now, the word breath in the Septuagint is the word pnae. And I don't know if you could hear it. This is for you, Beverly uh, Buffalo Bev. I don't know if you heard that pn at the beginning of pnae, right? Pn, same pn at the beginning of panuma. These are virtually synonyms, pnae and pneuma. And so the breath, it's the breath of life being breathed into Adam that made him a living creature rather than a dead husk of shapen, shaped dirt. So Adam became a living being by means of God's life-giving breath. That's the key I want you to think of as we move on to the second half of this verse. Again, the first Adam became a living being by means of God's life-giving breath. Now, and as I said a moment ago, this uh, pna'ein zoes, it, it, well, I didn't say this earlier. I said that pna'e and pnum are synonyms. What I'm saying now is that this pna'ein zoes, this breath of life, is elsewhere called the pnuma zoes, the breath of life. Again, pna'ein and pnuma are synonyms. Sorry, pna'e and pnuma are synonyms. So with that in mind, now let's look at the second half of Paul's contrast. Whereas the first Adam, <laughs> Buffalo, it's called, uh, it's pronounced pnuma. Um, in the second half, having said that, having pointed out that the first Adam became a living creature when God breathed his life-giving breath into him, now he turns to the last Adam, who became a life-giving pneuma. You see what's going on here? Um, th this is the same Jesus who says of himself in John 6 that he comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And everyone who believes in him, he will raise up to eternal life. And this breath language is connected to the concept of giving life in resurrection. And so the Septuagint rendition of Ezekiel 37 has Yahweh promising to bring upon you the pneuma of life, the breath of life. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will bring up flesh on you. It's a picture of resurrection being brought back to life by means of God's life-giving breath. Now, side note, this actually isn't a prophecy of resurrection. It's a picture of resurrection meant to symbolize the restoration of Israel. But nevertheless, the point is, is that the picture of a dead person coming back to life in resurrection, and by the way, not just dead people, but people with decomposed bodies that have just rotten away to nothing but skeletons, because this is, you know, ubiquitously known as the vision of the valley of dry bones. It's a, so it's a picture in which God's breath gives life back to dead people in resurrection. So... Again, Paul has just said that the first Adam became a living creature when God breathed his life-giving breath into Adam's lifeless body. And now he says the last Adam became a life-giving pneuma. This is the Jesus who promises to give life and resurrection, and it's the uh, and resurrection is accomplished by God giving his life-giving breath to formerly dead people. You put these pieces together, and what do we have? God's breath of life made Adam a living being but Christ became the breath of life that gives life to the dead. 
That is what Paul is saying here. It's a beautiful, poetic, and powerful contrast between the one who became alive because of God's breath and the other who becomes the breath of God that will make people alive. It's even it's even um, conceptually. Uh, oh, geez, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, for a uh, 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 somebody put this in the chat. A word for when you know you've got an A, a B, a C, and then a B prime, and then an A prime. It's a structure in Hebrew. Um, somebody put it in the chat because I think that what we've got here is a uh, something that either although not textually that kind of thing is conceptually that kind of thing. Just look at the mirror mirror nature of these two things. Adam became alive when God breathed. Chiasm! Thank you, thank you, thank you, Winston. So there's almost a conceptual chiasm here. Adam became alive when God breathed life into him. Christ became the breath of life that makes people alive. That's what Paul is saying. This text is not saying anything about... Jesus' resurrection body or his giving it up. And since, Skylar, you say you know this one, not chiasm. I'm, I, do, if you mean you know what this text means, great, because um, I think not a lot of people do. Um, and, and, to be, and, and honestly, in, in our you know modern English context, when it says he became a life-giving spirit, that does sound like he became you know like an angel or something. It sounds like that. But... Um, but if you look at it in the Greek and you look at it in, in the flow of Paul's thought and in the context of the scriptures as a whole, you see what Paul is doing. Again, it says nothing about Jesus' resurrection body or his giving it up. Um, okay, last one. This is the text that most recently um, has uh, that I've encountered in terms of people using it to say things that I think are unbiblical about Jesus. And this is actually something that a friend of mine on Facebook, some uh, I won't I won't name him because I don't want him to be um, uh, call I don't want him to feel called out or anything like that. Uh, but I hope he is watching this right now, either live or after it's it's recorded. But he he points to Ephesians four ten, um, which in which Paul says, "He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things." Now, what my Facebook friend understands this text to be saying is that when Jesus ascended, although he had been resurrected with his physical body, albeit glorified and immortal, when he ascended, he shed that body so that he could once again become omnipresent. That's what my Facebook friend thinks this text is saying. Uh, oh, Skylar and Winston, what I said was A, B, C, B prime, A prime. Right, and, and prime is a little, like a number one in math, um, a little subscript one next to the letters. All right, so anyway, so the question is, is this text saying that Jesus got rid of his body so that he could once again be omnipresent? I don't see that there, but let's dig into it because I have a lot of respect for this Facebook friend of mine. I just think he is inexcusably wrong about this text. All right, so let's dig into it. First of all, the verb here for fill is plerao. Um, and that clues us in to the fact that Paul is alluding to something he has already said. 
earlier in Ephesians, this is Ephesians 4.10 that we're looking at now, but if we go back to Ephesians 1.23, Paul says that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness, pleroma, of him who fills, there's that verb, pleirao, all in all. So he's here talked about Christ filling all in all, and then a couple of chapters later, he uses that verb again to refer to Christ ascending in order to fill all things. So they're clearly connected in Paul's mind. And notice that in this text, Christ is said to have been given universal authority and rulership. And notice also that Paul says the church is Christ's fullness. The fullness of Christ's filling all things. The church is the fullness, not his omnipresent spirit nature or something like that. You see, look at what several commentators have to say on this passage, and it makes so much sense. This is Andrew T. Lincoln. I don't remember which commentary this is. I want to say, I don't, I don't remember. I'm not even going to try to remember. If you look up these authors in Logos and look up their commentaries on Ephesians, you'll, you'll be able, easily able to find them. Andrew Lincoln says, although Christ is in the process of filling the cosmos, at present it is only the church which can actually be called his fullness. The church appears then to be the focus for and medium of Christ's presence and rule in the cosmos. In other words, what it means for Christ to fill the universe is to do so by means of his authority as exercised through the church. It's not talking about his omnipresence in the sense that we say God is omnipresent. It's talking about his omnipresence in the sense of being in all people in the end, but, but, but right now he's in the church. Here's another commentator, John Stott. Ever heard of him? What is in Paul's mind, therefore, is exaltation, bringing Christ universal authority and power which he bestowed on the church. Grant Osborne says Christ has been seated far above all rule and authority. He had just gotten done saying that a couple of verses earlier. All creation, including the demonic powers, is subject to his rule. He says filling is not imminence, like literally being everywhere, but transcendence. Christ exercising his rule and might over all things through the church, largely. You see, returning to Ephesians 4, if you read at verse 10 in its context, Paul says, therefore it says, and I'll tell you what says that in a moment, when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. So he quotes that, and then in parentheses, and, or at least some translations will put it in parentheses, he, ha he says Jesus ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And then he goes on to say that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, what Paul is doing is he's riffing on the on Psalm 68:18, not in the Masoretic Hebrew, not in the Septuagint Greek, but in the Targums Aramaic. That's the one place where the verb received in the uh, Masoretic text in the Septuagint is changed to gave in the Aramaic, and what he is said to have given his gifts. And Paul connects the psalm's ascent 
and giving to Christ's, uh, sorry, the, the, the talk of this, that the psalm has about this person's ascent and giving, he connects that to Christ's, Christ's gift of ministry workers to the church when he ascended. Remember, we're talking about the Jesus who said, when I return, I will give you the Holy Spirit who will guide you into all truth. Right? So, in addition to what we've already said about Christ exercising authority and rule through his church in, in its ever-expanding growth across the globe, in addition to that, we now have this additional connection. Um, Carson and Beale put it this way, the Christ who in his descent to earth and ascent to heaven triumphed over all his cosmic enemies is the same Christ who from his position of triumph at God's right hand distributes diverse gifts to his people in order to foster their unity. He's filling all in the sense of distributing spiritual gifts to all so that they can be experience unity and reflect his authority, exercise his authority and, and power throughout the world. N.T. Wright says Jesus went up into the heavenly realm where he now reigns as Lord and different gifts are now showered on the church. And Daryl Bach, Jesus has the authority over salvation to distribute the gifts of salvation and the power to make that distribution more effective than anything that stands in opposition to him. That leads to an effective presence and filling in the church. Again, the filling is not about God, uh, Christ's omnipresent divine nature being no longer fettered by Christ's physical body, once again able to be omnipresent everywhere. No, the text has nothing like that in it. No, he's saying that that Christ ascended in order to take his seat at God's right hand and exercise ultimate rule and authority over all of creation through his body, the church, which is the fullness of his filling which he accomplishes additionally by distributing spiritual gifts to his people. So again, this text in Ephesians 4.10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, is not about Christ shedding his limiting physical body so that he can once again be unlimitedly omnipresent. That's not what this is about. Rather, Christ's rule is supreme over all things. The church is the fullness of his filling all things through gifts that he has given them, including, by the way, the gifts of people, apostles, evangelists, teachers, etc. That's what this text is about. It says, and even if you don't think that's what it's about, there's no ground for saying that it has anything to do with shedding his body so he can become omnipresent again. The text says nothing about that. There's not even a remote hint of him giving up his body in order to once again have omnipresence. That is entirely speculative, has no basis in the text, and I think the reading I've here offered is, um, is the better one. And that is my presentation. So, um, I, I hope that it's clear to you that at the very least, at the very least, these texts that are so often used by heretics like hyperpreterists and 
seemingly heretical universalists like David Bentley Hart and Keith Giles, uh, and by liberal Jesus Seminar fellows like Marcus, Marcus Borg and others, I'm hoping that you can see these texts, at the very least, have equally plausible readings that don't require us to either say that Jesus, that, that Luke was wrong when he said that Jesus said, I have flesh and blood after, uh, after he was raised, and don't require us to reject the unanimous testimony of the early church that said that the flesh of Jesus was raised. We don't have to uh, reject the consistency of Scripture. We don't have to reject the unanimity of the early church. We can accept that indeed Jesus' physical body came up out of the grave and was every bit as physical as it was before, every bit as tangible, every bit as uh, composed, every bit as much uh, of bones and blood and flesh but immortal and powerful and glorious, no longer riddled with weakness and, in the case of many of us, disease and sickness and pain and injury and all those things. Yes, all those things will go away. When we are raised, we will no longer suffer. We will no longer uh, wilt away and, 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 and suffer from um, uh, blindness and deafness and limb loss and all those other things. No, we'll, we'll be perfect and glorious and powerful will have ideal, but nevertheless physical, pneumaticos bodies forever, just like Jesus. That's at the very least. <laughs> but what I think, what I, what I really think you should see on top of that is that with virtually no exception, every one of the texts that I've just pointed you to has even better readings that cohere with the physical resurrection of Jesus. Every single one of them has not just equally plausible readings, but much more contextually valid and consistent readings, the likes of which I've shared with you. So, Christian, please understand, your hope is not in shedding this body. Your hope is not in... Um, be either going to heaven immediately when you die, there to remain forever as some sort of disembodied soul or spirit floating around on clouds playing a harp. Nor is it to have your physical body transformed into or replaced with a non-physical or immaterial body that can that can float through walls and that looks radically different from you did from when you did before you died. None of those things are your hope. Your hope, and it is a glorious, beautiful hope that drove the early church to martyr themselves. That hope is that the body you have now, molecules and all, will one day come back to life. But no longer suffering from all of its ailments and frailties that it suffers from now. You know, I remember not long before Edward Fudge passed away, he and I were talking about a conversation he had over email with a hyperpreterist. And the hyperpreterist said to him something like, what would it take to, con you know, what would it take to convince you that the resurrection has already happened? <laughs> now, what, what Edward Fudge told me, he said, you got to understand, as Edward got older and older and older, he became increasingly, almost exponentially more um, riddled with, I think it was um, Parkinson's um, or, or something similar to that. He, he constantly shook and, and moved. He experienced a great deal of pain, like constantly. And so when, his, when this hyperpreterist engaged him over email and said, what would it take you to convince you the resurrection has already happened? You know what he said? 
when I can type without without the pain that I type with now. <laughs> you see, your hope is not getting rid of this body. Your hope is in this body no longer suffering, no longer aging, no longer dying. And that is what will happen if you are a believer and uh, when and then when you rise from the dead in the resurrection you will be transformed made glorious powerful no longer subject to pain disease death and aging etc but it will still be your physical body so i hope that's been helpful and i hope it's been motivating um maybe a little convicting for some of you i'm open to correction but you've got to offer something better than either my Facebook friend does concerning Ephesians 4.10 or better and better than Keith Giles, David Bentley Hart, or Marcus Borg do on those other texts because the typical evidence offered for those readings is just crap. It just is crap. Um, so, hope that's been helpful. Um, again, I will be preaching my first ever completely solo sermon that I've completely prepared solo this coming Sunday. So I'll try to remember to put a link in the description to the uh, YouTube channel of my church. I'd love for you to watch it after it's been published to the YouTube channel and let me know what you think. Um, and again, please be praying for me. Um, but coming back to the topic of this video, I hope that it has helped you and I hope that um, you will provide me with feedback. If you think I've gotten something wrong here, if you think I've said something, if, if you think I've um, missed some really critical evidence that supports the readings of Borg, Giles, Hart, or my Facebook friend, then please, by all means, put it in the um, uh, YouTube comments below or, uh, or or send me an email. It's up here on the screen right now, theapologetics at hotmail.com, and I'd love to interact with you. But in the meantime, I'll bid you adieu and just invite you to come back in two weeks' time at the usual day and time, which will be Monday, August 9th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Until then, take care and God bless. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...